This is the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. This is a podcast aimed at better understanding other people and better understanding ourselves. You can learn more about it at behavior-podcast.com. This episode will be about this podcast. I've gotten a good number of new listeners in 2022. Right now it's mid-December and I've been getting a bit more than 30,000 total downloads per month for the last few months, and that's been slowly rising. A year ago, I was only at 10,000 downloads per month, so a pretty substantial increase this year. And I thought some people, especially newer listeners, might like to know more about this podcast, to know things like, what do I see as the point of this podcast? How do I decide to talk to the people I talk to? What are my goals with it? Why do I sometimes focus on political polarization? And this episode might be interesting to you if you were thinking of subscribing to the podcast and helping support me with this work. With a subscription, you get ad-free episodes, bonus content, get to collaborate with me on creating interview questions, and a few more things. But the people who subscribe mainly do it because they appreciate the work I'm doing and want to encourage me to do more of it. You can learn more about how a subscription works at behavior-podcast.com premium. I'll also go into some of the financial aspects of doing this podcast, and that might be interesting to some of you even if none of the other stuff is. I'll start with why I decided to start the podcast in the first place. I started this podcast as a follow-up to my PokerTales work. If you don't know what PokerTales are, it means behavioral patterns one can find in the game of poker. I'm a former professional poker player, and my PokerTales books and videos are what I'm most well-known for. My first PokerTales book, titled Reading PokerTales, has been translated into eight languages. And I've always been interested in psychology and behavior. As a kid, I used to read various random psychology books my parents had laying around the house, like Freud's The Psychopathology of Everyday Life and his book The Theory of Dreams. At one point, I was inspired by Harriet the Spy and would spend time writing down the things people said and analyzing them for hidden meaning. My dad worked as an indexer, creating the indexes for a wide variety of books, and so some of the books I skimmed and read when I was a kid were books he worked on from the American Psychological Association and other psychology institutions. And this interest in psychology was why I later found poker so interesting. I was initially interested in the psychological aspects of it, the idea of reading whether someone was bluffing or had a strong hand, the various ways you might manipulate people's perceptions of what you had. So both my PokerTales work and this podcast both stem from a long-time interest in psychology. I've also had some mental struggles, which also can help explain some of my interest in psychology. My first day of high school, I had a panic attack, which was related to me going to a new school system and knowing very few people. The panic attack was the most painful and scary thing I'd ever experienced at that point in time. I had never experienced something like that, and I felt like I was losing my mind. After that, I was depressed and anxious for the first couple of years of high school and very socially isolated. I ended up reaching some social normalcy and had some fun in my last half of high school. But then when I went away to college, I had some similar anxiety experiences. I was depressed and anxious, and I was smoking too much weed, which definitely didn't help. And all that eventually culminated in me having more panic attacks and feeling like my connection to reality was fraying. I had to leave college in the middle of my second year. And it was a long time after that before I felt somewhat content with life and felt like I'd rather be alive than be dead. And a lot of the factors that got me through all that strike me as just due to a lot of luck and randomness, like so much else in life. So that's another reason I'm interested in psychology. Like a lot of people who've struggled with mental issues and depression and anxiety, I'm interested in understanding the factors behind such experiences. I'm interested in why some people escape the abyss and why some people don't. And I thought the podcast would give me a chance to delve into some of those topics.
And I thought at the very least, some people who've had some similar experiences might find those episodes practically helpful for their lives. I first decided to start this podcast after I interviewed Brian Rast, a high-stakes poker player, about poker tells. That was an interview I planned on putting up on my Reading Poker Tells YouTube channel, and was also something I did for research for the Poker Tells book I was working on at that time. But it ended up being such an interesting talk, and I enjoyed it so much that I thought I might actually enjoy doing a podcast. I thought about doing a podcast before then, but never started on it because I didn't think I'd actually enjoy it. And I think enjoying that kind of thing is necessary. I knew it'd be a lot of work, and I knew I wouldn't be making any money on it for a long time, and maybe never. It seems like there's more podcast makers than there are podcast listeners these days, so I never had any high hopes. For my initial concept of the podcast, I wanted it to overlap a bit with my work on poker tells. So the logical thing seemed to be to make it a podcast about reading people, analyzing people, predicting their behaviors, things like that. The title of the podcast, People Who Read People, was meant to indicate that the podcast would be about talking to all sorts of people who read people in various ways. And if you were wondering, the title is also a play on the song, People Who Need People, which was sung by Barbara Streisand in the musical Funny Girl. People, people who need people, that one. My initial idea for the podcast was that it would involve interviewing a lot of people from a wide variety of jobs, and not necessarily jobs you'd think of as being psychology-related. So towards that goal, I've interviewed a restaurant manager, a bus driver, an MMA jiu-jitsu fighter, someone who tracks people over land, to name a few. I was partially inspired in this approach by the 1974 book by Studs Terkel, Working. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. My takeaway from that book was that even the simplest-seeming jobs can have an immense amount of hidden knowledge and interesting takeaways and learnings, if we ask the right questions. And of course, I wanted to interview various psychology and behavior researchers and experts and learn about the interesting work they're doing. One of the coolest things about doing this podcast has been the chance to ask questions about things that I'm curious about, things that are sometimes hard to find the answers to. And that was another reason I was okay working on it, even though so far it's been a net negative in terms of money and has involved me spending a whole lot of time on it. It's just been educational and interesting to me. One of the things I wanted to do with the podcast is to try to make it as practically useful as possible. When I plan out an interview, I try to focus on the things that might actually be useful in people's day-to-day lives. I find a lot of psychology-related podcasts overly abstract and academic, so I wanted to try to avoid that if I could. I think that almost everyone has something to teach us, things that we can apply to our own lives, if we can just ask the right questions and if we're open to seeing the world in a different way. This isn't to say I think I always ask the right questions or the best questions or focus on the right things. Often I'm disappointed with my approach and my questions. But the thing that I try to let drive my approach is just asking questions about things I'm curious about and trying to focus on the practical as much as I can. As you may know, I've also focused a good amount on political polarization-related topics. I do this because I genuinely believe this is the biggest problem humanity faces. I think that our tendency to separate it into angry us-versus-them groups is our biggest challenge. I also think this tendency will likely be the cause of our destruction in the not-too-distant future, especially as weapons and technologies become more advanced and dangerous. To take just one example, the fact that it will become easier and easier for people to create deadly diseases. Our us-versus-them tendencies seem to be hardwired, part of our social psychology. Polarization is just so common. Most countries in the world right now have been increasing in polarization since 2005. 
with America being just one of the more prominent and extremely polarized examples. And obviously, many societies throughout history have been polarized and have destroyed themselves in various ways, not to mention all the smaller groups and organizations of various sorts that are always breaking up due to what seems to be our natural tendency to form into factions and fight with each other. And one of the reasons polarization is so bad is that the many serious problems facing us as individual countries, or as an entire world, can't be solved if everyone is fighting with each other. We won't be able to even agree on what the problems are, and we'll polarize around these problems, and we'll be so gridlocked we just won't be able to tackle them. So that's another reason I say that us versus them polarization is our most important issue. And one reason I focus so much on this topic is that I think it's amazingly underexamined in mainstream journalism and in the culture in general. I do this because I'm disappointed other people don't talk about it more. There are for sure other people who focus on depolarization and bridge building, various people and organizations, and I'm just one voice adding to that. But I feel like the more people talk about it, the more it will pressure the more influential and powerful people, journalists and politicians and others, to talk about this topic. I don't actually want to be talking about these things, to be honest, but so few people are, and that's part of what drives my interest in it and feeling that it's important to focus on it. And a big part of my work attempting to tackle polarization-related topics is about certainty and uncertainty. It's about examining some of our highly certain narratives. Highly certain narratives are how we become polarized. It's not just certainty about issues. It's certainty about the way other people are, what they're like, and what they believe. Polarization is about more and more people growing to hate the other side based on the very certain narratives they've formed about those people. To be specific about this, when I did an episode on transgender issues, my goal was to show the immense amount of nuance in that debate and to show why a liberal side stance that goes something like, conservative positions on transgender topics are based on bigotry and hate, is a simplistic and polarizing one. My goal is to show how it's good to not be certain about other people, and to doubt your side's narratives about them, and how it's good to be willing to see how some people on, quote, the other side may have logical and well-meaning reasons for their stances. And if you take the stance that a large, complex group of people on the other side of any issue are simply ignorant and mean, then that may be a sign you haven't done enough work to understand their perspectives. To take another example, when I did an episode examining claims that the majority of Americans are racist, my goal was to examine overly certain and unreasonable and irresponsible narratives about racism that have been promoted by some powerful people and institutions, and to examine how those overly certain narratives, narratives about the badness of the people around us, contribute to our us-versus-them polarization. To take one more example, I did an episode on the topic of how many Americans really would be willing to engage in political violence because I saw that there were some common worst-case framings of surveys related to people's willingness to engage in political violence, when in fact those surveys contained a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity when you really looked at them. And those worst-case framings lend themselves to our us-versus-them polarization, in making us all more paranoid and angry and distrustful. Our highly pessimistic framings in general have aspects of self-fulfilling prophecies, in that we build up highly certain and frightening narratives about the other side, and then treat those people accordingly, and then they return the favor to us, treating us in angry and fearful ways, and so on and so on. So I think embracing humility and uncertainty is a good thing. I think our desire to be certain and to escape the anxiety of uncertainty is one of our worst, most destructive traits as humans. We don't like living with uncertainty, especially when we feel threatened. 
And it's easy to feel threatened in this world. Life can be threatening. Death can be threatening. Isolation and loneliness can be threatening. Freedom can be threatening. It can be paralyzing when we realize just how much depends on our choices. It can be threatening to think that this world might be meaningless, that nothing might matter. We want answers, and when we feel we have answers, our minds are set at ease. We want righteous causes to give our lives purpose. In the pursuit of righteous causes, we may even want villains we can fight against, villains who we believe are very, very different than us. We would never be like those people, we tell ourselves. We lose our humility and we think we are special, that we have some special goodness that sets us apart. But of course, we could easily be other people, if things had gone a different way. As someone once said, there but for the grace of God go I, which could just as easily be phrased as, there but for the randomness of the universe go I. So I think it's good to live with uncertainty and to say, I don't know, and that's complicated about many things, whether it's the controversial and complex topics that we often fight over, or whether we're talking about the motivations of the people around us. In doing this podcast and working on some of my polarization-related writings, I've had people complain about the liberal-leaning nature of my podcast, and also people complaining about the conservative-leaning nature of it. I've had people tell me that my, quote, ideology has ruined the podcast. But I don't really believe I have an ideology or any specific political goal. I know many people say that, but I really do feel it. There are very few things I actually believe strongly, and definitely no big overarching philosophies of how the world or society should be structured. I see a big part of my goals with the podcast as promoting uncertainty and humility, and seeing how much nuance there can be in so many things. The most important thing to me is seeing others' perspectives. Because if we can see others' perspectives, that is inherently depolarizing. One of my episodes was a talk with a militant Antifa person in Portland, Oregon, who defended going out and fighting with police and setting fires to buildings. He thought he and his compatriots were part of a noble fight against a fascist white supremacist police force, and part of a larger fight against a fascist white supremacist government. I thought this person's ideas were very bad and even dangerous. And I wanted to do that episode to show to a liberal audience how one could find these views and these behaviors very bad, while not being a conservative and not being a racist and not being a fascist. But one interesting result of me doing that talk was that I had some conservative people write me emails basically saying, I loved your talk with that Antifa guy. It really made me understand his perspective more, and I feel more empathy for why people are doing those things and why liberals aren't that bothered by it. So in other words, regardless of my own opinion and regardless of the opinion of my guests, having these conversations can be depolarizing and empathy generating for people on both sides, no matter what the topic is, no matter what the beliefs are. That's why I say the important thing is seeing others' perspectives. When talking about the importance of humility and uncertainty and the importance of seeing other perspectives, I've seen that some people misunderstand the goals of this. I've had some people tell me, but then how can you take any action on things like climate change or fight against very bad and harmful things if you're not certain about anything or if you respect others' views so much? And I think that's a misunderstanding of why embracing uncertainty and empathy is good. Embracing uncertainty means that in many cases you would try to trust what the most knowledgeable people think on a subject. It doesn't mean you're just wishy-washy and say, well, I guess I can't act on this because I don't know what's going on. It means you try your best to reach a logical conclusion while keeping in mind that you and others are often wrong. And in the case of climate change, for example, you can imagine someone being very uncertain about the exact nature of the threat, but also deciding to trust the experts and also seeing that the risk of being wrong is very dangerous, so maybe it's better to err on the side of taking the threat seriously. 
For these reasons, it's possible to imagine someone working very hard to combat climate change, even while being uncertain about how serious it will end up being, or while being uncertain if it's caused by humans or whatever. So I just want to make the point that embracing uncertainty and humility as values doesn't mean you can't act forcefully, even aggressively. It just means being skeptical and doubtful about a lot of things, especially being skeptical of those narratives that are emotionally appealing to us, and we therefore are more likely to embrace. Also, seeing the value of uncertainty and humility doesn't mean you can't judge other people or hold them accountable. There are many people around us on both the left and the right who speak in highly divisive us-versus-them ways, who speak with certainty about the evil nature of the entire other group. And part of my work on polarization is trying to get people to recognize how unhelpful and bad this type of certainty is, this moral certainty about other people. Because we can work towards whatever political goals or activism we want, while recognizing that the more angry and judgmental we are, the more we'll make our problems harder to solve. Our us-versus-them anger and our moral certainty about other people helps create the very things we're angry about. And one of the benefits of embracing uncertainty and humility is that you're better able to live with your decisions being wrong. Because your decisions weren't made due to an emotional need to be certain, but because you simply tried your very best to reach a decision. We're, after all, only human, and we often fail, sometimes very badly. It's okay to be wrong, and it's okay to fail because it's the nature of being human. And approaching things from these angles also makes you treat others with respect. It makes sense to withhold judgment about people's motivations until we really understand what drives them. We can more easily forgive other people because they're human, like us, and because most people are simply trying to do what they think is best and right with the current information they have, like we are. And people can change just like we can change. And by treating others with respect, we reduce us versus them polarization. And we make common, respectful debate and persuasion and negotiation more likely. Okay, next I'll talk a little about the listener numbers and some of the financial aspects. Up until recently, I've made no money on this podcast. I've spent a good amount of money on it. Some money has been spent on recording equipment, some has been spent on ads, but mostly it's been an investment of time because each episode takes between four to seven hours of work in finding and contacting guests, researching the topic a bit, forming questions, doing the interview, doing the editing. And I've often wondered if I'm wasting my time. There are many income-producing things I could be doing, so I often had doubts about whether this made sense. I started feeling a bit better when traffic started picking up this year. My audience has been growing pretty substantially in the past few months. At this point in time, December of 2022, I've been getting a bit more than 30,000 total listens per month across all episodes. That's up from like 10,000 total listens per month a year ago. A year before that, in late 2020, I was only getting like 3,000 listens a month. So things have ramped up quite a bit this year. Up until a few months ago, I had no income generation from this podcast. Around the middle of this year, I started using automated ads on Buzzsprout, which is the podcast platform I use. Those are mostly ads for other podcasts. The amount paid is 1.4 cents per ad run. Another way to say that is $14 per CPM, or cost per thousand impressions. And a typical episode will have two or maybe three automated ads in it, so this works out to a thousand listens of an episode, making a little more than $28. And that would work out in theory to me at my current listener rate, making around $900 per month total. But in practice, many of these ads I do not run because I don't think they're a good match or I think they're just poor quality. So I'm only running a fraction of the total amount I could. I've been making anywhere from $200 to $600, depending on how many ads I accept. 
I also recently added a host red ad for a UV light producing lamp that I've used the last few years. It's designed to increase vitamin D levels, and because it's a product I actually use, I felt good promoting it. You can learn more about that on my website at behavior-podcast.com slash vitamin D. I also just started the premium subscription option, which gets you an ad-free version of the show, lets you see my upcoming interviews and the questions I plan to ask, and lets you send me ideas for questions and a few other things. You can learn more about that at behavior-podcast.com slash premium. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, thank you for being interested in my work. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to it. Another huge thing you could do to help is to tell your friends and family about it on social media and help me spread the word. You might also go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review there. And if you need a link to do that, you can find it on behavior-podcast.com. Thanks a lot for your time and for your interest. Music by Small Skies. Small Skies.